Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Even though there wasn't that much long-distance trade or that large a volume of trade, the movement of ideas was taking place. In this episode, I speak with Yale historian Valerie Hansen. Until the late 19th century, key documents from the era of the Silk Road remained unknown to historians, many deliberately hidden by officials for safekeeping. In her book, The Silk Road, A New History, Valerie Hansen examines a range of remarkable archaeological finds that reveal the Silk Road's revolutionary and complex cultural, economic, and social history. She writes, The Silk Road changed history, largely because the people who managed to traverse part or all of the Silk Road planted their cultures like seeds of exotic species carried to distant lands. In conjunction with the Getty's exhibition, Cave Temples of Dunhuang, Buddhist Art on China's Silk Road, Valerie came to the Getty to give a lecture on the ancient Central Asian city of Dunhuang and the some 40,000 objects that were sealed in the famous library cave there. I sat down with Valerie in my office just before her lecture. So Valerie, thanks so much for coming. My pleasure. It's great to have you here with us at the Getty. Now, you open your book with an image of and a story about a 7th century Chinese document of testimony by an Iranian merchant living in China who disappeared with his two camels, four cattle, a donkey, and 275 bolts of silk. And you tell us that it's but an example of the recent archaeological finds of documents about life and commerce along the Silk Road. Tell us about the importance of those finds, and perhaps about this one in particular, and what they tell us about that's new about the Silk Road. So the that find, that document, uh, is typical of the documents from Turfan, which is an oasis outside of Urumqi in Xinjiang, in the formal name is the Autonomous Province of Xinjiang, but in northwestern China. And those documents, those excavated documents, they're about 2,000 from Turfan, allow us to see the nitty-gritty of what the Silk Road was actually like. And so one of the things we learned from that document is exactly how much that merchant was carrying when he disappeared. We think he was probably kidnapped or taken captive by some bandits, and his brother is suing in court. His brother, he's a Sogdian, and the Sogdians, you're right, they're Iranians, and they're the most important group of traders on the Silk Road, and uh, he's suing in court to get back a loan that his brother made to a Chinese merchant. And they had no, the Sogdian and the Chinese merchant, his older brother and the merchant had no language in common, but somehow they um, reached an agreement and they signed a contract in Chinese. And then they also had witnesses who provided oral testimony in court about the contract. And as far as we can tell, he was successful that the court ruled that the Chinese merchant did owe him as the heir to his dead brother um, the money. And I was going to say the key thing is that the scale of the Silk Road trade is so small. Right. It's right. just, you know, one person, a couple of animals. Yeah, that's what I think is so interesting about the book, because the book counters the popular view, probably, of the Silk Road as being something that from start to finish, that is from Xi'an to 
to Aleppo or something like that that takes you across the full extent of it. And you make the very clear point that these are kind of micro-exchanges. These are, these are agricultural communities for the most part, some of them commercial but agricultural communities, in which someone trades things that they have from one town to the next. And that one then it gets picked up and exchanged from one t- that town to the next and after that. But that sense of a smaller um, exchange route than one imagines it so grow to be. And is that something that was prompted by the documents that were uncovered by so many so recently that changed your view of the Silk Road? That's absolutely my view. And the documents, the first document, excavated document, was discovered in the 1890s. And so the documents that we were just talking about, the um, about the court suit, that was those were um, excavated between in the 60s and 70s. And there have been other documents that have been excavated more recently. But basically, the whole 20th century documents are being uncovered. And there are some in Chinese, but there are a lot of them are in dead languages like Sogdian. Um, Tokarian and Kuchean, uh, these different languages. And the many of the people who work on those documents know those languages. I know ancient Chinese, but not the other ones, the dead languages. And so people know about their specific group of documents and not all of them. And what's interesting is that when you read these different groups of documents, you never find anything describing large-scale trade. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that is kind of is contrary to what most people think yeah, about yeah. the Silk Road. Now, we're, we're talking today at the Getty because you've come here to lecture in conjunction with an exhibition that we've put on on the Buddhist caves near Dunhuang, the Mogao Grottoes, as they're called, in the far west of China near the Taklamakan Desert. And you note in your book that the largest group of documents about the Silk Road, if I remember this accurately, some 35,000 in all, uh, were recently uh, excavated from a garrison town some 40 miles east of Dunhuang, uh, what did they tell us, and how do they relate to the 40,000 or so documents found in the so-called library cave within the Dunhuang complex? So that more recent group of documents is from a place called Xuanquan, which was a military fort during the Han Dynasty, So, the, which is from the 2nd and 1st centuries BC through the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. Those documents, there are 35,000 slips, but most of them don't have writing on them. Now, you organize your book around finds and the historical importance of archaeological and historical sites, beginning with the ancient cities of Nia, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Lulan, on the southern edge of the Takmakan Desert in the west of China. It might be interesting for our listeners to get a visual of, of, the, of the region, of the location, and the role of the Takmakan, which divides the Silk Road north and south as you go from Xi'an, let's say, west beyond Kashgar and so forth. But so if, if you could answer the question in a sense with giving us a sense of a map, but could you describe also the setting of those particular sites, Nia and Lulan, and tell us about their importance and about their early modern discovery by Earl Stein early in the last century, that is early in the 20th century? So um, the Nia site and the Lulan site are on the southern Silk Road, as you said. So the Silk Road um, I think the basic core of the Silk Road connects Chang'an with Samarkand. And so Chang'an was the historic Tang dynasty capital that's now modern Xi'an. And so travelers going west would travel, everybody on the same road to Dunhuang, and then at Dunhuang the road split, and some people went to the north and went to Turfan, um, and then to Kucha, and then around to what modern Kashgar. Other people went to the south and through Lolan, and then Nia, and then Khotan, and then they reached 
Kashgar. And that's because there's a big desert in the middle of it. And there's and so, right, and the Taklamakan Desert is a ferocious, very dry desert uh, in the middle of it. And the um, Lolan is, I haven't been to, it's very hard to get to Lolan. It was used to be the um, A-bomb testing site for the Chinese. So it's, um, uh, and I actually haven't been to Nia either. Uh, I've been very close to Nia because there's now a modern highway that goes through the Taklamakan Desert called appropriately middle of the Taklamakan Highway. And uh, I've been on that and you can just get off that highway and go a little bit into the desert and go um, to Nia, but I wasn't able to go. When you go now, it's a very dry. It's, I mean, it's pure desert, and the finds from Nia, the reason they're so interesting is that so many things were preserved, uh, things that are usually don't survive archaeologically in other places, like cloth, um, mm-hmm. like wood. Uh, and um, lo, uh, so I was going to say, Oral Stein, the first excavated document uh, surfaces in the 1890s. Somebody brings it to um, a British consul and sells it to him. And the and Oral Stein, we should just say, Oral Stein Hungarian, is, working for the British, is that right? Yeah, he's, a, he's born Hungarian. He's going to be naturalized as a British citizen. I don't know when that is. He's knighted in 1907 after he discovers, well, or after... Depends on your point of view. Um, he removes or loots um, the ma- a massive number of documents from the Dunhuang caves. But he's got a PhD in Sanskrit, so he knows what he's looking at. And when he gets to Nia and he goes in 1900 um, to Nia for the first time, and it's his favorite place because he can see where East and West meeting in this one site, and he recognizes that the local documents are written in a script that's used to write Sanskrit. It's called Karoshti, but at the Nia site, it's there's one or two Sanskrit documents, but most of the documents are in a North Indian language called Gandhari. Was, so. was the city alive then? Oh, Were no, there people was, resident at well, all? Well, I was going to say because it was a lost city at one point. Right? It's a, it's a, it's there is a, a river. All, almost all the rivers in Xinjiang are mountain runoff, and there was so because um, there are mountains to the south of, ta- of the Taklamakan and also to the north, and so the um, mountains to the south of the Taklamakan, the water is running down into Nia, and there's a river that dries up. So when Stein gets there, he follows the river bed and gets to the place where the river dries up and there's still um, a pilgrimage site, a Muslim um, pilgrimage site. And then he follows the dried up river course um, up, oh, I'm guessing maybe 100 or 200 miles and gets into what we now know as the historic site of Nia. And you, so you can go today to where he went to that um, Muslim site and um, you can see there's a little archaeological museum there. But it's the whole South Road, the Southern Silk Road, the if you think of the Taklamakan like an almond, and the uh, the eastern side of the southern route was basically fell into disuse about 500. And we're not sure why. There are debates about climate history and did it dry up. But it, um, there's a Chinese archaeologist named Wang Binghua who excavated his whole life in Xinjiang. And he doesn't think that the Taklamakan dried up the entire region. He thinks certain rivers ran dry and other ones um, replaced them. The river courses shift. And so um, for whatever reason, um, Nia and Lolan are both abandoned after about Four, well, it's funny, 400, 500. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think it's in Nia or uh, around Nia that you tell a story of some 5,000 graffiti and inscriptions on rocks mm. uh, along the way. It's actually on the road from the Karkorm Highway. So that's from Pakistan up into it, the people who arrived in Nia 
from India probably went by those graffiti, but the graffiti are actually pretty far from India. Uh-huh. And so what do they tell us, this graffiti? It's heartbreaking because they almost always just have somebody's name. Oh, that's all that's it is. It. It's just, so there's one that tells us where the person was from. Uh-huh. Why would the person want to inscribe his name, I suppose, and where he's from at, at that point? Is it just an I am here kind of thing? I think so. And I think they're also waiting. People, when people the, on the ancient Silk Road are traveling, they often have to wait for the seasons to shift. So the mountains, for example, will be impassable in the winter and then better in the summer. And so I think we have a vision of people sitting around bored and thinking, oh, well, I may as well carve my initials in the... Um, they, they also do Buddhist sketches. So that's very interesting because it tells us about the transmission of Buddhism and where it came from. And we can see some shifts in the graffiti so that the earlier Buddhist sketches don't have pictures of the Buddha, which is exactly what we would expect because uh, the Buddha told his followers not to make pictures of him. And then um, over time, people ignored that and they started making pictures uh, of him. Yeah. And I think we have textual and other uh, physical evidence, stupas, for example, of communities of Buddhist monks in the region of Nia and Lula. Is that correct? The interesting thing about the Nia documents, there aren't that many of them, but they are very informative because they talk about some Buddhists, they use a word that is usually translated as monk, but then you find out that many of these men had children. So if if they're monks, they weren't celibate. I think they're probably early Buddhist followers who were still living at home. There's evidence in the documents that they were living at home and they had families. And then there were some who lived in monasteries. So that, which makes sense, you, if, if one's impression from those documents, they were constantly at war. The documents are from the third and fourth centuries, and they have enemies everywhere, and they're always writing about being at war, and people try to collect on loans, and the a local officials say, well, you can't collect on the loan because we've been at war, and we know that it's just not possible to honor those loans from earlier periods. Right, right. You leave uh, Nia and Lulan to go to Kusha, is that pronouncing it correctly? Kusha. Over on the opposite side of the Takamakan Desert, on the northern edge of the desert. Um, And I gather that it was the largest oasis town on that northern edge that in the official history of the Han Dynasty, the population is given as 81,317, to be precise, (laughs) uh, which sounds like a very large community of people. Yeah. People debate the reliability of the census, but certainly it's got to be there. It's based on something. I mean, they are performing a census, and uh, the uh, it's a prosperous place. There are beautiful rivers that are flowing uh, into it, and um, it is a major settlement on the northern Silk Road. And you say that it's a um, center of translation, and that yeah. many of the documents are travel passes that tell us a lot about uh, the composition of caravans traveling through the region. You note, for example, one caravan comprising, this seemed to me astonishing, 240 non-Chinese merchants and 600 camels carrying 10,000 bolts of silk. Is that a very large caravan? Or that's is that a little... huge caravan. I mean, that's that's one, that's actually not attested in the excavated documents. That's from one of the dynastic histories. And um, that would be the counter example to my argument. I mean, I think that most people, would, when they think of the Silk Road and of caravans, they would think of something that large. But I, I would say that's the exception that proves the rule. When you, Because the travel passes we see from Kucha are talking, again, mostly about um, a couple of a- animals and a couple of people. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, in my imagination, I was trying to imagine Kucha as a 
big city on a, on a very vital part of the Silk Road with a lot of traffic going through it. But it, and you're saying this is the exception. So there, while there were a lot of people living there, they may have still been small merchants, you know, not yeah, larger commercial enterprises. I, I see basically a trickle trade, that most of the production is local. We don't have um, that much information from Kucha about that directly speaks to that question. There's much more information from Turfan. But the so from in Turfan, roughly the same period, so the like 500 to 700, um, we have a, a market register that tells us everything that was for sale in the market. And the heavy preponderance of goods is local goods. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just going to get to Turfan because oh. in the same census, we know, or we're said to know from Turfan that there were 37,700 people living there and 8,000 households. So that makes it about ha- less than half the size of Kusha. But what what is a what does Kusha tell us about the Silk Road and then ultimately its distinction or what distinguishes it from Turfan? What does Turfan tell us about the Silk Road? Kucha is famous because it's one of, um, there's a famous translator who was born in Kucha named Kumar Jiva. You can hear from his name. It's a Sanskritic name. His dad was from India and as actually was his mother. And then um, his mother didn't want to get married, but she was persuaded to get married. She had Kumara Jiva, and then she joins a nunnery. And he grows up um, speaking different. So he's, he knows Sanskrit. I mean, he's and he's a Buddhist, so he's studying Sanskrit. Uh, he also is speaking. There are local languages in Kucha, and they're called Kuchayan. That's just Kucha with a language, you know, the an, yin and it added to it, and Agnian. And um, and then he's kidnapped and he learns Chinese and he founds a translation bureau around the year 400 where there's a team of people working together. And the previous translations, the pre-Kumarajiva translations, are all kind of approximate where uh, somebody who was a native speaker of an Indian language would be talking with probably Chinese um, early Buddhist devotees uh, and sight translating. Well, he would re- he would know the text. He would have memorized it. Almost everything in the Indian tradition is memorized. I mean, thousands and thousands, even hundreds of thousands of verses. Uh, he would recite something, and then he would explain it to the Chinese, and they would write down what it meant. And it wasn't standard, and there's a huge amount of variation, and these are very hard to understand. And Kumar Jiva comes in, and he sets up this translation bureau, and he systematizes all the translation. And so the translations that he does make sense in Chinese, and they're very popular. But even now, people find them easier to read and easier to understand than some of the later, more technically accurate translations. So um, I think the and then I was going to say another thing that's significant about Kucha is that there are early Buddhist art in the caves of Kizil, and that is matches the early period at Dunhuang, so in the um, 300s and the 400s. And although actually the dating's contentious, and I just met someone who said that those Kucha caves have all been redated, so they're later now. But they're um, much more stylistically influenced by India. So Kucha is a place where the Indian influence is the clearest. Uh-huh. I think I remember that you write about Kucha that uh, it's important for our understanding of the relationship of the Chinese military to the Silk Road economy. That's interesting. There's... um. There's a little bit of material. There's better material from other places. There's not that many documents from Kucha. There are those, the caravan passes, um, but the, and then there's some Buddhist texts, but there's not very much about like the Chinese military that we have. There was a garrison there. Um, there's some um, records from them, but it's very fragmentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, do I remember that the one of the important 
uh, contributions that Silk makes is as currency or as salary, shall we say, to the to the to the military. In other words, it's it's useful material. It's not only a, a luxurious material. It's I, I think probably most of the silk that was um, being circulating on the Silk Road was used as currency. So even that the um, court case that we started um, talking about, where the for the loan of the 275 bolts of silk, that silk is not being sold as a fancy textile. That is the currency that is in use um, in Turfan at that time in the 600s. And the silk has, I mean, when we think about it now, we may think it's not that practical, but it's actually lighter than coins. Coins are heavier, and um, the silk was fairly durable. Uh, and it also had the advantage that if you needed to, you could cut it up and make a suit of clothes. And we have examples of people doing that where they're like, oh, I need to, you know, I've, my, my shirt is torn, and they cut and make clothing out of it. There's a chronic shortage of coins, basically running through um, the whole Silk Road period. And they so so and the, we know about this. The Chinese state officials in the Chinese state are writing about this in the 600s and 700s, and saying like, how can we supplement those coins? What other things can we use? And they use grain. So they um, to give it a sign of value, a fixed value for grain and for silk and for coins. And there are ratios. And the Tang Dynasty uses, which is a nightmare for historians because it's very hard to figure out what it means. They use a combined unit, which is like a bolt slash peck slash um, string of coins. And you're like, well, how much money was that? You know, and, the, and the exchange rate is always changing among those three things. I, I gather that there were thousands of silver coins found near in the area around Turfan. And and you write about that, and you write about the Sogdians, as you just were referring to them as uh, sort of, the, I guess, the in, legacy of the Iranians in the Iranian uh, empire. Um, but they came in great numbers from Samarkand, thousands of miles away, to Turfan. Who were the Sogdians, and what was the significance of this discovery of these coins that tell us something about this, the Sogdians? So the, the Sogdians are the people who live in Sogdiana, and that's a region of Central Asia around Samarkand. It's culturally associated with the Sasanian Empire more than it's under direct political control of the Sasanians. It's usually independent, and there are city-states, um, also oasis states, and the um, Sogdian residents tr are trading with China. Well, it's funny, one of the big discoveries of the Silk Road is the Sogdian letters, and they're in the early 310s, so the th um, 312, 313, and they record the presence of different Sogdian communities living in China, one of them probably in Dunhuang. So they're the main Silk Road traders, and the silver coins are evidence of their activities and of the links between Turfan and Kucha and then with Sogdiana or the region around Samarkand. And they have their own language. Broadly speaking, they're Iranian, and they speak um, Sogdian as a language that's related to Middle Persian. I, I think that you're referring to by these letters, the letters that were found in the Sogdian mailbag. Yeah, Is that right? exactly. Yeah? By Oral Stein again, right. is that right? It's Oral Stein and, again. And, and what would it be like to come across uh, a bag full of letters? Well, he does describe them because they're, um, he, he finds there, he talks about, he creates this word, he coins this word, which I love, is convolutes, which is um, a piece of paper that's been folded many, many times. And so the Sogdian letters have been folded many times, and they're not, they have addresses that are very short, so they've been entrusted to a messenger who's on his way to Samarkand. So it doesn't say, um, the name and the street address and the city. It just says, you know, give it to Jim Kuno in L.A. 
right? And and the assumption is that the um, the carrier uh, is knows you and knows your um, address, and so. And what roughly? What is the date of this? This is those are have been dated to three twelve and three thirteen. Oh, right. Okay. I think you say in the book that these letters are important uh, because they tend to to have been written by merchants rather than by authorities overseeing or taxing the trade. What's important about that? We have so little documentation from actual merchants and all of this material. And, you know, there's different sites and they produce different documents and they're found in different places. Uh, sometimes they're, they're often linked to officials like or, or court documents. We'll find like an archive of officials who, was, who were hearing many different disputes and writing them down. Uh, we'll find in the Chinese graves, people will bury different kinds of paper, or they'll recycle government documents and make clothing out of them in Turfan. That's how we know about that uh, lawsuit in the beginning about the deceased Sogdian whose brother is trying to recover uh, the material. But to have letters from the merchants about their business dealings, that's really unusual. Um, and those documents really are the first thing we know for sure about the Sogdians. There is some earlier Sogdian material, but those letters, there are uh, seven or eight of them. Five of them have been translated into English by um, Nick Sims Williams, and they tell us some of them are from a merchant writing back to his boss in Samarkand saying how the business is going. And also they give specific quantities of materials and their linguistic of the different trade goods. They're linguistically extremely difficult, and the people who know Sogdian are, debate pretty much almost all these different words um, in those letters. But most of the quantities seem, again, to be fairly small. Do these letters or do uh, other such documents help us understand about the sort of lives of the people involved or just the transactions that Well, the Sogdian letters, there's two letters that are heartbreaking because they're written by a woman whose husband has abandoned her. She's in Dunhuang, and um, she writes a letter to her husband and says, basically, I'm stranded here. She and her daughter are working um, as shepherdesses, uh, we know, because the daughter writes a postscript on one of the letters. But she says she needs, she wants to go home, and her husband has abandoned her, and she lists all the different people who she's gone to, all the different men in the Sogdian community she's gone to for help. But most of them have turned her down. There's one Sogdian priest who's trying to help her. So uh, you have a sense of somebody who's, I mean, it's very human. You really feel like you, you feel this woman's pain. Mm. So uh, to get back to Samarkand and mm. to help our listeners trace this path we're on, we, we've been on the northern side of the Takamakan mm. Desert. We're heading west. We've gone to Samarkand. But you also introduce a city east, just not far, but east of Samarkand. So backtracking a little bit, shall we say, uh, the city of Pachakent, uh, now in Tajikistan. Uh, your description of that town or that city is extraordinary. Could you rehearse that for us and tell us its importance to the Silk Road? Well, it's funny. It's The reason it's important is that Soviet archaeologists have excavated there for more than 50 years. So and so much of the archaeology we have on the China side is focused on tombs. It's not entirely. There's some excavations of palaces uh, in China or, um, yeah, like city walls. But we don't have a whole city that's been excavated. In Panji Kent, we also don't have a whole city, but we have a third of a city or nearly a half of a city of a Silk Road city um, that's been excavated. So we can see all the houses there, for um, example, and we can see all the art, and it's a so it was you know in the core area of the Sogdians, so we can see what Sogdian life was like before the coming of Islam. Uh, we can see 
people, it's funny, when you look at Panjikent, there's not that much evidence of trade there as a city. I mean, people lived in beautiful houses with paintings of Sogdian deities in like their living rooms. The biggest paintings that they would have would be of Sogdian deities. And then it's a little bit like the caves of Dunhuang that the details around the deities would be from other things. There are a lot of pictures from the Panchatantra, this book of Sanskrit fables that traveled, those stories traveled all through um, throughout uh, Central Asia. We can see um, some fire altars. It's, uh, I mean, it's it just allows us to see what what Sogdian life was like. Did they live in ways similar for us to imagine? Uh, Herculaneum, for example, or Pompeii. I was just going to say, sort of like that. Pompeii. It's very similar, yeah. So there's a, it was a real city with, as it were, streets right. and rectilinear there relationships. There are streets, and right, and, and there are bigger temples, and you can see how the rich live and then poor people live and there you know there are annual site reports in Russian uh, but we know more about it than we we know about any other Silk Road town yeah and so we can extrapolate at least in a large town that that's a Sogdian manner of urban uh, yes, development absolutely. of some kind yes to distinguish it from Xi'an and Chinese right. plants or something like that right now um, we're talking about the 7th century uh, and uh, not long after Xuanzong makes his way out of um, Samarkand, for example, uh, the Arab armies come in. This would be right. about 50 years later or so, 40 years later, and they ultimately conquer the city. How did the arrival of the Muslim invaders change the Silk Road? I think the biggest change about with the coming of Islam is that the earlier basically general policy of tolerance ends. All of these Silk Road oasis rulers um, on the Silk Road, they many of them were Buddhist, but they allowed their non-Buddhist subjects to worship what they wanted to. And with the coming of Islam, people are not forced to convert um, to Islam, but there are benefits to being a Muslim. And then also the state supports Islam in a way that the earlier states, it privileges Islam in a way that the earlier states didn't. Mm -hmm. Does that uh, translate into a kind of retrenchment of commercial activity along the Silk Road? Because of a, a less and less tolerance of difference along the Silk Road? I think it's very hard to demonstrate that there was less trade. Um, I think that the centers change. So the trade is reoriented. So people who become Muslim are focused more on the cities to the west. So And then the Hajj becomes very important. People are going on the Hajj. And the, so the routes, the trade routes, converge at Baghdad or they converge at Basra, the port um, near Baghdad, where in the previous period they would have gone to Chang'an. So um, there, there, you know, there's still this local trickle trade continues. Yeah. You, you follow your chapter on Samarkand with the chapter on Xi'an. We've already talked about Xi'an. Uh, you mentioned in that uh, d the chapter on Xi'an that it was the capital of three major Chinese dynasties, the former Han, the Sui, the Tang dynasties, and so forth, and that it, it was a point of departure not only for caravans going west, but also along the Silk Road, but also for those heading east to the sea routes. Um, and you described the recent finding in the suburb of Xi'an uh, of, of one of the largest hordes of buried treasure ever found in China, you say, including some of the most valuable and most beautifully worked Silk Road artifacts, and including more than 470 coins. Uh, tell us about the role of Xi'an on the Silk Road, as you say, going both east and west, going both over land and over the sea, and tell us about that find. So you're absolutely right. It was the, I mean, it, it's really, I think, the most important city in China on the Silk Road. And when you go there today to Xi'an, everyone is telling you this all the time, so I happen to agree with them. Uh, the 
Um, but it is interesting. It's not intuitive that the sea route travelers would start there. But they do, they do start there and then go down to the sea and then travel um, through Southeast Asia. The sea route is always being used. I mean, I, this, my book was about excavated documents and looking at the overland route. But there's a lot of very interesting information about the sea route. We have um, other monks who tell us about traveling by sea, like, like Xuanzang. There's someone named Faxian who travels in around the year 400. And there's someone named Yijing who travels at the end of this, in the like 695. And there's a, a, a well-developed sea route. And also on the sea route, there's not the limitation that there is overland for how many goods you can carry. So people are loading ships full of goods. And then the, part of one of the positive effects of Chinese expansionism in the South China Seas is that of greater interest in the archaeology of shipwrecks because the Chinese are hoping that they can uh, demonstrate a territorial claim to various places. So uh, we there's a um, and there's a very interesting site called Belitung, which is in an Indonesian island, and the it was excavated commercially, and then the Singapore government bought all everything that was found there, and uh, thousands of ceramics in a single ship. So from what date roughly? The Belitung is oh, I want to say the late 600s, uh, but I'm not positive about so, that. So one is tempted to suggest the following, which is probably dead wrong, but to suggest the following, which is that with the arrival of the Muslim armies uh, um, in Samarkand and then uh, across uh, into China, and then the withdrawal of the Tang Dynasty, the closing of the garrison towns and the various things like this, and this kind of, you, you talk about it as being a kind of rise of anti-foreign sentiments mm. in the Tang Dynasty. One wants to see a kind of drying up of trade along on land, on the trade routes on land, and transfer, this is where it's probably wrong, transfer to sea routes. No, it's, I mean, lots of people think that. I mean, lots of people would say that the overland route dies out sometime around the year 1000, maybe later, maybe you go to 1400. Uh, I wouldn't see the coming of Islam as the end, the reason for the end of the trade. I would see the presence of the Tang army in Central Asia as a key factor in the boom period of the trade. And when the Tang withdraws, which is actually simultaneous with the victory that Tang lose a battle to Islamic forces in 751, and then there's a huge rebellion within China in 755. And the Tang troops, some of them can get back to China. Some of them are just stranded out there. We have documents from them trying to make a go of things in the 780s and the 790s. So that's the only way I would tweak what you said. But I would say the sea route was always in use. So, so in your book, at this point, you go back out west toward now to Dunhuang. Right. So you've gone from the west in Samarkand and from Turfan to the east to Xi'an. Now you're going back out the west to Dunhuang. I will interrupt you and say there is a chronological reason yes, for that right? movement. I mean, <laughs> it's, know, it sounds totally random as you've just described it, but we are going in chronological right, order. Right, so, right, okay. Right. And to that point, you call Dunhuang the time capsule of Silk Road history. Right. Why is that? Because of the library cave. I mean, well, actually, because of the library cave and also because of the painting, the painted caves, because there are the Mogao caves uh, start in the 400s and run through to the 1300s. So, you you know, you can go century by century and see how um, Buddhist painting is changing. The library cave is the time capsule because it was sealed. We're not sure of the date, but sometime after 1002. And uh, it contains material 
most of the materials from the 9th and 10th centuries, but there is material going back to, again, that period, the 300s and the 400s. Yeah. Now, there are things in the Getty exhibition uh, from the caves themselves. Tell us about the caves. Tell us about the sealing up, the reasons why it might have been sealed up, the how it was then discovered much later, and then the in consequence of some of the things that are in it to tell us about life in Dunhuang. The cave... Um, is a side cave. It's been this has been very heavily studied. The it's in a small side cave that was dug into um, a wall next to a kind of a normal cave that had a Buddhist image in it. Uh, that cave began as a memorial to a monk. We know that because we have some texts that tell us, and there's also a statue of him there. And then it was filled with material that. You know the the numbers of documents, the estimates are from thirty five thousand to fifty thousand, half in Chinese and half in Tibetan. Those are the vast majority of the material. But there are all, lots of other languages like Sogdi and all the Silk Road languages. But also things like there's a prayer in Hebrew. That's one of the things that's um, on it. Not a prayer. It's a a um, a poem written of existing lines from the Bible that have been sewn together, um, and that's on display in the Getty. So. It doesn't have very much printed material. It was sealed around the year 1000. We would expect printing, not using movable type, but printing using wood block, um, individual wood blocks um, for text uh, is well established. And we would expect, I think, to see a lot of printed material. The Diamond Sutra, which is the world's first printed book, is it doesn't look like a book. It's a scroll. It's rolled up. So, But it is an integral unit, which is why people call it um, the world's first printed book. We would expect to see more printed material than that. Most of what we see is manuscripts. It was There were schools in Dunhuang and people, um, like monastic schools, and people studied Buddhist texts, of course, and uh, copied them and to learn how to read and write. But they also copied contracts. They copied lots of other things and poems. So there's a lot of variety in uh, the material. The cave was found um, in 1900. We don't know that much about how it was found because nobody recorded it, but there was a itinerant monk who called himself a Taoist. Uh, he had become a Taoist when he was in the Chinese army, and he knocked on the cave wall and he heard it was hollow and he um, opened up the wall and found all the materials. Oral Stein gets there in 1907. He's the Hungarian who has been naturalized um, and becomes a British citizen. He's working for the Archaeological Survey of India. And then Paul Pelio gets there in 1908, and Paul Pelio is probably the greatest sinologist that France has ever produced. So um, they get there and they tell us what we know about the discovery of the cave, we know from them. There's like no eyewitness accounts of its discovery. So it's sealed from, you know, 1002 to, let's say, 1900. Um, so there's uh, 900 years where, and it's and the it's dry. So um Pretty much, as far as we can tell, everything that was placed in there is intact. And there's a lot of paintings, too. It's not just documents. Paintings, and there's some, some – the paintings are on silk. Uh, there are some document wrappers. There are some banners that are on display in the Getty. There's a huge amount of material. I mean, there's so much material. There's a branch of study in China called Dunhuangology. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, people just – that's what they study. I, I gather that there are documents that list military salaries and the role of bolts of silk in these salaries. That's one of my favorite documents because – it shows that the amount of silk that the central government sent 
up to Central Asia to in support of the armies is so much greater than anything we have recorded in the excavated documents. So that fits my view that this, the Silk Road was not about private trade. It was about the government support. The Tang government is paying the troops with silk. It's sending bolts of silk um, up to China. We actually, from Turfan, we have some bolts of silk that um, have the writing on them, the same as those silver, those um, lumps of silver that were found in Chang'an. There are pieces of um, silk found in, again, by Arlstein, found um, in Turfan, where it has the inscription of the town that wove the silk and gave it as part of its taxes. Yeah. You, you talk about an inscription in one of the caves, uh, not in the library cave, but another one of the many caves that are at Dunhuang that offers a uh, step-by-step account of how to make a cave. So I'm sort of interested that that would be actually inscribed on the wall of a cave as opposed to left in a document. Why would one do that? The desire of the donor to document his contribution to the cave so that he will generate merit and also that he will be a Chakyavartan ruler. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, I think that's the basic motive for the cave construction. So, all so, the caves. It, so it documents the making of that cave, which can be interpreted by others as a way to instruct them to make other caves, but it wasn't left with the, ins- the idea that it would be an instruction for other cave makers. It's document- no, no, it's, 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 it's not, it wasn't meant to be instruction, but it's, I think it's just, it's a wonderful example of somebody explaining um, in, in that particular case that the local ruler of Dunhuang, who's a, from a, like a Chinese strongman, um, his, his uncle has reconquered Dunhuang in 84, taken Dunhuang back from the Tibetans who were occupying it. And the, this is the nephew. And um, he's describing his desire to make a cave as an expression of pious devotion, which everybody would, that would have be always what they describe their motivation as for any kind of Buddhist contribution. And then what's interesting is he describes digging the cave into the conglomerate there, and then the gods help they, because they're, they're, they want the cave, right? And so they, they hasten the, um, the excavation. So that's, um, I, I was going to say, it's charming to see that idea that the gods want the caves too. And there's, you know, there's a, a school of thought by a professor from uh, University of Chicago, Wu Hong, that the paintings were not meant for people. The paintings are meant for the gods to see. I find that very compelling. Yeah. Now, you, you end your history of the Silk Road with Khotan in the far west of China. So you've now gone even farther west uh, beyond Dunhuang. And the region uh, was Buddhist at the time, I think, and was conquered by Muslims at the turn of the year 1000 right. or so like that. What is the importance of Khotan to the history of the Silk Road? Well, and why do you end your book with it, other than the chronological reason to do so? Well, I believe that the cave in Dunhuang was sealed in 1002 in response, or thereabouts, in response to the news of the fall of Khotan. Um, that the there were very close ties between the rulers of Khotan and the rulers of Dunhuang. They're intermarried, and there are portraits of Khotanese um, brides that are in the um, Dunhuang caves, and also of the Khotanese king. And we've got some one document in 970 where the Khotanese are fighting this Muslim army, the Karakhanids, and winning. And they send um, a, the ruler, the king of Khotan, sends a letter to his uncle, who's the ruler of Dunhuang, saying he's winning with some gifts that he's gotten. He's recovered. He's stolen from um, this uh, the Karakhanids. And then we don't there's we don't know what happens, but then we we just know that Khotan falls about 30 years later. And we do know when the Islamic armies invaded that um, they defaced existing Buddhist monuments. So the Buddhists, any Buddhists living in the region would have dreaded 
an Islamic conquest. And I, I, I do find that the most compelling reason for the library cave to be sealed. I also admit, this is the theory of Rong Xinjiang, a professor at Peking University, that there's no direct evidence that this is what happened. We don't have anybody saying, let's seal the library cave because Khotan has fallen to the Muslim invaders. There, that, we, we don't have that. We just have the chronological sequence. I end my book because the excavated documents that I am interested in really stop at that point. That they stop around the year 1000. Um, the whole field of Silk Road history shifts linguistically, and it becomes, um, a, in order to understand what's going on in Xinjiang, you really need to know Uyghur. And there's a modern language of Uyghur, but there's also a, tr a classical Uyghur. And it's a language I haven't studied. There's also not very much material. But you, you move from a Buddhist era, and my whole book is really about a period where Buddhism is the main religion um, in uh, the whole Silk Road, uh, you move to a new era where the, the main thing that happens is the Islamification of Xinjiang. It takes about 500 years. Now, about 300 years after this uh, fall of um, Khotan, around in the year 1300 or so, um, a, little, a little before then, Marco Polo visits Khotan, right. right? And uh, he describes it in his account of his journey, and that uh, merchants like Polo and his uncle Yusei provide a crucial service for the Mongols, that is, the ruling authorities in China. Tell us more about that and about uh, Polo's account of uh, Khotan at that moment. Well, I was going to say, I should also, if I can put a plug in, I have written a sequel to the Silk Road book that has a chapter about Polo, and it also has about translations of 50 documents. For that um, So it's like an expanded version, as opposed to a sequel, a, 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 an expanded version of the Silk Road book, and it is now out. Um, the um, Mongols had a group of merchants who played a key role for them that if you think of the Mongols um, conquering a city, laying waste to it, and then getting a huge amount of plunder, the things that they plundered were not necessarily what they wanted. And so they went to a group of merchants called the Ortag um, and uh, asked, basically said, here's all the stuff we've plundered. Bring us back what we want. And what they liked were textiles. They liked two-dimensional art. They liked things that they could hang in their tents. And so um, there are, we know about the Ortag merchants. And then there's a chance that Polo and his uncle were foreign Ortag, um, foreign, I mean, European Ortag merchants. Most of the Ortag merchants were from Central Asia. So they would have been Uyghurs or speakers of um, Arabic. How did Polo provide a crucial service then to this? Oh, so if Polo and his uncles were members of the Ortag, the crucial service they provided was converting the plunder that the Mongols didn't want into the goods, the textiles. Like there, There's a lot of beautiful um, textiles with golden threads in them that they did want. I see. There was a huge controversy in the field a while ago about um, the reliability of Polo's account, and Frances Wood wrote a book saying she doubted that he had gone to China, and then um, she was very ferociously attacked by some Mongolists who felt that he had definitely gone to China. And reading their attacks on her, I'm persuaded that he's, Polo certainly went to Beijing, to the Mongol capital um, in Beijing. I, reading Polo's accounts of China, I still think he didn't go there. I still think that he's <laughs> relaying hearsay. Uh, but the travel accounts at that time in the 1300s were not, readers did not expect that the author had gone to all the places he wrote about.
And I also think our ideas about plagiarism are, did not apply at the time. So people very often lifted each other's accounts as they described different places. Now, you close with a compelling statement. You say that the Silk Road was one of the least traveled routes in history and possibly not worth studying if tonnage carried, traffic, or the number of travelers at any time were the sole measures of a given route's significance. Yet the Silk Road changed history. But it, it, it changed history because even though there wasn't that much long-distance trade or that large a volume of trade, there were the movement of ideas was taking place all the time. And we can see, um, I mean, the movement of Buddhism into China is probably the best example of a re- of religious movement that we can see um, along the Silk Road. But there are other religions coming in too, Manichaeism, the Christianity of the Syriac church is coming in. We can see technological movement. The, mo- the, the technology for how to make paper is going out of China. The technology for how to make glass is coming into China. So um, that's what I think is really interesting about the Silk Road is that cultural exchange. And I don't think it presupposes a comparable mercantile exchange. Yeah. Well, the book is a, an important book, a substantial book, and we're pleased to know that there is a, an expanded version of the book <laughs> just out. And it's also Oxford University Yeah, Press. also Oxford. Right. Well, thank you, Valerie. Thank you for the time this afternoon, and thanks for coming to the Getty. Oh, thanks so much. It's my pleasure. It's absolutely beautiful. It must be the most beautiful museum in the world. Thank you so much. Join me again next week for a special episode, Cave Temples of Dunhuang. I'll visit the galleries and life-size replica caves of the Getty exhibition, Cave Temples of Dunhuang, Buddhist Art on China's Silk Road, with Neville Agnew, Laurie Wong, Susan Whitfield, and Marsha Reed, to talk about the paintings and sculptures found in the caves, as well as the work the Getty Conservation Institute has been involved with at the Dunhuang Caves for the past three decades. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Subscribe to Art and Ideas on iTunes, Google Play, and SoundCloud, or visit getty.edu slash podcasts for more resources. Thanks for listening. <laughs>